0: When I named this podcast Twitter Travels for Pete over a year ago, I had no idea how prescient that name would be. How could I know that Pete Buttigieg would be nominated to be Secretary of Transportation by President elect Joe Biden? Secretary designate Mayor Pete Buttigieg. This exciting news has prompted all of Team Pete to learn as much as we can about transportation and thus. Welcome to Twitter Travels for Pete, Transportation Edition. Today, we're going to be talking highways, and I'm so happy to have a transportation engineer here to help explain everything to me. Help me welcome Jonathan French, a transportation engineer who I found on Twitter. Hi, Jonathan. Hi. Welcome, welcome. (laughs)
1: Thank you. Good to be with you today.
0: So I I found you uh, because you had been responding to all this interest that we had about to learn about transportation since Pete was nominated to be the secretary of transportation under the the Biden administration. And particularly, you had written a, a piece for Medium about specifically Pete. And what he can bring to his that that position. The title is an agenda for highways and bridges for a 21st century transportation Se- secretary. And that that was fantastic. And I thought, wow, I wanted to interview him anyway, and now this uh, this piece makes it <laughs> a lot easier. <laughs> but first, I want to ask you, since you're definitely Team Pete, and obviously you wrote about how uh, uh, what Pete could do uh, and what he should uh, uh, focus on. Uh, I would like to just start out by uh, asking you about how you how long you've been supporting Pete and to what extent uh, you were involved in the campaign.
1: Sure. So it actually goes back to the 2016 campaign. Um, I, uh, I actually supported Martin O'Malley in that campaign. And when he kind of, you know, dropped out after the Iowa caucus, uh, it was kind of like, all right, well, what's he going to do next? And then everybody was kind of saying he was going to run for DNC chair. And so kind of getting up to that point, it was, uh, you know, it it was all kind of speculation. And then he suddenly decided that he wasn't going to run for DNC chair and that he was going to instead um, support a young mayor (laughs) from South Bend, Indiana uh, named Pete Buttigieg. And, uh, you know, I had no idea who Pete was. Um, I did know that Liz Smith was actually with the O'Malley campaign, so I, I was following her on Twitter as well, and you know she kind of went on to you know Team Pete in the, in the earliest sense um, that there was a Team Pete. So I was following her Twitter and, and following Pete as well, and, and kind of listening to him and just thinking, you know, he, he really, you know, how he got it. I mean, the his um, the way he communicated, the things he talked about. Um, you know that it wasn't it wasn't the uh, you know the the Clinton versus uh, Bernie camp that you, you were always hearing. It kind of cut through all that, and just you know just laid everything out so eloquently and just and and he he was uh, you know a, a, you know a kind of a policy wonk just like kind of I am, and it just it just really fit. I mean, it, so you know he so I immediately kind of gravitated and, and started you know posting some things on, on Facebook and, and just following more and more. Um, you know, I was disappointed when he dropped out of that. Um, but uh, you know, I was like, all right, well, now, kind of, what's next for Pete? What's going to happen? You know, is he going to run for you know something maybe in in 2020? Maybe he'll run for a representative or something and kind of work his way up. And so we were getting you know 2000, uh, you know, end of 2018 ish was coming, and uh, you know, you you get the presidential candidates starting to declare. And you know, I was thinking, all right, well, who am I going to support? And you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, Pete decides, you know, announces that he's forming an exploratory committee. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, I was thinking representative, senator, president, you know, the kind of a natural progression, but I'm like, he, he's okay, he's going to go for it as, you know, from his position now and just thinking, and he was still the same, still the, you know, still very much the same messaging, um, you know, and it became very, you know, early on, it became very clear to me that, you know, I supported him at DNC chair. Uh, you know, if he's running for president, I'm going to support him for that too. So, you know, I kind of, I donated some money early to the campaign and kind of, you know, started following it. Um, you know, there, there was enough interest to actually turn the exploratory committee into an official, you know, campaign. And, and then I was fully, you know, fully on board with like merchandise, uh, funding, uh, following, and then, uh, you know, following on social media. And during the campaign, I actually uh, became a digital captain, which was the digital world for for the Pete for America campaign was just, you know, so revolutionary. And and, uh, the people in that effort, uh, Stefan Smith, um, you know, just that whole effort was just so groundbreaking of, you know, bringing everybody together in the social media world and and organizing and, you know, doing that whole digital door knocking and things like that. That uh, just had, hadn't really been done before on that level, and so I was I was glad to be part of that, and that's kind of how introduced to, to different folks at Team Pete. And you now I did finally when the when the uh, main uh, it was kind of it was kind of bittersweet because it was when Pete had dropped out just the weekend before I was actually campaigning for him um, right to, in my uh, in my hometown in Maine. And, uh, you know, was knocking doors and things like that. Um, and then, you know, the news came, uh, you know, a few days later. So right before Super Tuesday. But, uh, but no, I mean, it's, I've, uh, you know, I, since his DNC chair run, it was clear, you know, there was really something special and something that, uh, you know, that he had to offer America um, that uh, made me want to support him in, in any any way I could.
0: Oh, very well said. I have two things for you. When I was door knocking in New Hampshire, you know, that weekend before, my door knocking buddy was from Maine, a, a uh, young man. Yeah. I don't remember his name, but he actually said he worked for the congressional leadership there, but he didn't want to tell me who who he worked for. But um, yeah. anyway, there's the there's the <laughs> Maine connection. Yeah. And then digital captain... I was I was uh, on the welcoming team. What what digital captain area were you in?
1: I was on the I think it was the local response team, but I kind of got I kind of got put into the uh, kind of the hype <laughs> sort of stuff. So it was kind of you know I was kind of split between two of them because I was trying to put stuff out there on you know that it was great that you know folks would create graphics and we could just put them out on the web and and just it was a a well run machine for sure.
0: Uh, it, it was uh, fantastic. I'm so glad that you credited Stephen Smith because, yeah, that and just involving all uh, have, having all that energy anyway. Uh, that's just like we're we're Team Pete and that's what we're right now. Also <laughs> trying to channel the energy that we have for Pete. Right. And Learning about transportation. Yeah.
1: And it's this is like a dream come true because I've wanted to see transportation advocacy from somewhere, you know, some shape or form, because. You know, when you think tra- transportation you know, advocates, you think of lobbyists, you know, you don't the general public kind of, you know, it's kind of in the background. And, you know, in a way, um, something that Pete said, Pete had actually said at uh, one of the events he had spoken at when he was mayor was that, you know, that was you, you knew when things were working if people weren't talking about transportation. So it was right. kind of you know counterintuitive, but for me, you know, I've really wanted to see kind of the advocacy and to have you know a digital group together, <laughs> and and a group together actually you know thinking about doing some of this stuff is just is just music to my ears.
0: Oh, that's good to hear, because uh, I think it's important for people to really understand uh, what's the magnitude of the need. Like you said, like he said, things are going well if nobody mentions transportation, so they're only going to talk about it if it's not working. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Yeah. And for us to really understand your perspective and your medium piece of an agenda for highways and bridges for a 21st century transportation secretary, can you tell us a little bit about your professional background?
1: Sure. So right now, um, I'm a licensed professional engineer, um, and I'm serving in the role of an act, of acting engineering data manager at the Bureau of Project Development at Maine DOT. And, uh, you know, I, prior to that, I was actually a full-time highway designer starting in 2006. And I've designed a you know a variety of projects intersect you know really intersection improvements uh, and including three roundabouts um, you know roundabouts Yay, roundabouts,
0: roundabouts. Kind of,
1: yes yeah big a big passion of mine because of all the things and you'll you'll see obviously I wrote about them in in the piece and I write about them quite a bit because you know I really do believe in them but. Uh, the big thing, too, is, is the innovative piece of it. Um, you know, I've always tried to strive to find something, you know, a better way to do things or a cheaper way to do things or provide like kind of a better life cycle cost, just a better way to you know, utilize taxpayer money to, to get the most bang for the buck. And, and also, you know, there's so much technology and things to make things better. You know, why not try it out and, and see if it works or not? So you know, I've always been kind of trying to do that, incorporate that into my work. Um, right now, though, as a, as acting engineering data manager, um, kind of my main charge is doing uh, upgrading our um, design software, our, our computer aided uh, design software, our drafting uh, software, and so right now, so that we can produce the digital models for construction, because that kind of that's the up and coming trend right now is having digital models out there instead of paper plans that everybody used to re- you know is used to relying on. And actually part of Federal Highway's initiative, they have something called Everyday Counts. And that's under the Center for Accelerating Innovation, which resides under the Office of Innovative Program Delivery. So under that huge flow chart, um, they've got this initiative that touches all the state DOTs, and they really encourage um, the DOTs to actually take a look at different things. And one of those things is called digital as-builts. And what an as-built is, is you design something then it goes out into the field and it gets constructed, but the plans that you have out there um, or the model that you have out there may not have encountered, um, you know, there might be something, a field condition that you may not have thought of, like there may be a utility line somewhere or something that just wasn't covered in the survey that you had had uh, got out there um, to design. So you you actually need to have what was actually built out there recorded as well. So we have what's called an as-built. So folks can rely, you know, future down the road, if you want to look and see, oh, okay, what was actually built here? You know, if you look at the design plans, you may not get that. So that's why we have these as-built.
0: Oh, but fascinating. Now there's a,
1: yeah. Now there's a thought that um, we're going to make these digital models. So now not you won't have paper plans anymore, but you'll actually have a 3D model where you can go in and see everything, you know, kind of in a 3D format. And then also to update those while they're in the field constructing so they can actually make comments on the model or adjust the model. And then you bring that model back in and you have potentially, if, if depending on the technology and you can install sensors and things, you could actually get a real-time data of that particular asset that has been built without having to actually go out in the field and inspect it. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of potential there, um, you know, especially for things like bridge inspection and stuff like that, where you kind of, you know, where there's some, you know, a danger and a safety component to it that you may not have to deal with anymore because of this new technology. So, um, you know, that's kind of where we're headed. We're not, we're not there yet. I mean, that's kind of years down the road, but, um, you know, it's coming and and we're really getting ready for it by giving everybody the tools they need to, to start uh, deploying that.
0: That sounds really exciting. I so we we won't see um the engineers with their big uh, scrolls of plans uh spread out at the construction site, right? They'll have uh, what they'll have iPads yeah, instead. Yeah,
1: eventually, yeah, that that's going to be the case. You you're, you're going to see you're going to see engineers with iPads probably and and just you know, and tablets and things like that uh, and who knows whatever technology comes down the road. That's
0: right. Well, the um, complexities
1: Yeah, is
0: is definitely there. Wow. Okay. So let's get to these uh, the top five areas that you think uh, need to be addressed. You you prioritized, and uh, I can see after reading them why sort of they're interrelated and uh, some things need to be dealt with first. So the first thing that you have is I want to make sure uh, number one implement user fees for vehicle miles traveled fix the highway trust fund so that's called the VMT vehicle miles traveled. Yep. So this is something to do with the how the gas tax just uh, is obsolete should be obsolete is becoming obsolete but I'm going to let you yeah, take it.
1: <laughs> sure it's it is obsolete. I mean we're we're relying on a you know a 20th century method cuz now we're in the you know the 21st century but and you know that was back when you had you know, plenty of vehicles on the road that, you know, didn't have great fuel capacity. So people used a lot of gas. Gas was, you know, fairly inexpensive. So people, you know, filled up quite a bit and, you know, we were, you were able to generate the revenue that you needed to, to do the work um, that, that had to be done. Um, but that buying power kind of has slowly eroded because one, we're getting more fuel efficient vehicles, which is a good thing for consumers, obviously, because they're not having to spend more on gas. But the other issue with it is that there's hybrid and electric vehicles now, um, so you know to try to deal with climate change, right? So there, that uh, that component of it really wasn't factored in, and you know as as those vehicles increase, as we're trying to do more for the climate, we're now reducing the money that we actually have for roads. <laughs> So we need to figure out something because eventually, you know, if we try to, you know, if we, we try to uh, you know, get these vehicles to the point where we're getting, you know, 50 plus miles a gallon all the time, we're not going to have any money to build, you know, to build the roads and fix the roads that they're driving on. So, you know, really everybody kind of has seized vehicle miles traveled. Um, they've piloted this in Oregon and, and California and, and other states are really looking at it and federal highways awarded money to take a look at it so it really seemed like we're headed in this direction and Pete during the campaign really you know he he basically said well yeah let's do this <laughs> you know it doesn't make sense cuz a lot of states and things they're, they're going out they're doing studies and things like that and it's just you know we're, we're headed in this direction so let's just go there the sooner we go there the sooner we can get everybody on board the sooner we can you know get rid of the gas tax and actually you know get Infrastructure funded the way we need to. Because right now, what they've been doing is, you know, the gas tax hasn't been raised since 1993. Um, that was the last time. And, and, uh, oh, are you kidding? Raised at,
0: wow. No, 1993.
1: <laughs> and it, it's 18.4 cents per gallon right now, same as it was in 93. And the only reason it got raised at that time was that uh, President Clinton had wanted a 4.3 cent addition on it to deal with the federal deficit. So he put that on there, and in 1997, he redirect it was redirected back into the trust fund. So essentially, you know, the 4.3 cents was only to, to reduce the deficit; it wasn't even for roads. Oh wow! So, you know, really, in 1997 was when it was diverted back. But but yeah, that 18.4 cents tax hasn't been changed since 1993.
0: Okay, definitely time for it. So the uh, so states are states are looking at individually t- using it, like at the state level. So we're talking about. Let's just get it uniform uh, at the federal level. Exactly. But can you explain really how it's determined? Because, I, you know, gas tax, that's like pretty straightforward how that works. But a user fee for vehicle miles traveled...
1: And that's, that's why the, you know, we, that's why it makes sense to get everybody kind of headed in this direction because the automakers already have this technology. I mean, we already have, I mean, they have all these onboard tracking. you know, Toyota has got onboard tracking GM, you know, for, for crashes and emergencies and things. And it's like, well, this technology already exists to know where vehicles are and know where they travel. And there's definitely ways where the privacy issues and those concerns can be worked out. So you know if if everybody if all these industries join, if the government joins in, you know we can we can solve this issue, but the problem is you've got to decide that this is the way you want to go, and nobody's had that conversation yet, really.
0: Why do you at, think at why do you think of, that's so?
1: because I think it's because of all the privacy issues and things that just nobody and and Congress itself has just been so dysfunctional that you know it's just everybody can agree this is the sol- this is the way we need to go, but nobody. Wants to agree. This is how we get there. So it's just you know that sort of thing. And and states have been kind of scratching their heads because you know a lot of states are trying things out and and they've actually raised the gas tax themselves. Um, Because that's the thing too. I think we're going to have to talk about too is that you know we're not going to get to vehicle miles traveled right away. So that's why we need to get there now. You know we need to start moving in that direction because if we don't, you know we're going to keep losing our revenue and we're going to have to keep figuring out how to bail out the highway trust fund all the time. So, you know, it just, it just makes sense to get there now. Um, you know, Pete was like, let's get there and let's start, you know, let's start going in that direction so we can actually get this thing moving to the point where, you know, we can start developing technology and and getting it because you got to develop the technology, then you have to deploy it. I mean, you have to potentially go to gas stations and I think that's Oregon actually has something where if you, where, that uh, they've got a couple of different um, services that you sign up with and, and they are the ones that, you know, bill you for the, for the mileage fee. And when you gas up, you're not actually charged the state gas tax. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of retrofitting and things that need to happen and, and the auto industry needs to be on board and, and just so many parts need to come together. So, but it, it's, you know, it just, it takes a while to get there. So you've got to get it started or else you'll never get
0: It doesn't mean it can't be done. (laughs) That's for sure.
1: Exactly. Exactly. There's so everything, all the pieces are there to make it happen. It's just, you got to get it together. And, you know, I think Pete leading a charge for it, you know, especially with his communication skills can definitely, you know, um, present that to the American public is something that they need to start advocating for, you know, especially with the fact that we, you know, we want to have, (laughs) are, you know, to, to deal with climate change. And, and we want to be able to have transportation that is clean, you know, and, and, uh, you know, doesn't, uh, contribute to it. So, you know, it just makes sense to move in this direction.
0: Yeah. But you, you still need to pay for the, the highways. <laughs> so exactly, yeah, if you have the clean vehicle. All right, let's go on to the number two, develop a long-term transportation reauthorization plan. And it seems to me, what you know, what a lot of us don't realize, what a re, why does it uh, is it always called a reauthorization plan? So that's a reauthorization authorization of funding.
1: It's the reauthorization of the program. Um, basically, federal highway has the surface transportation programs, and so those are reauthorized essentially to continue to function. Um, so the last reauthorization we had is, was called the FAST Act. And basically, it runs out in 2021, and it was only authorized for you know 305 billion over five years. You know, only 305 billion. You know, I say only in front of that, but you know, President-elect Biden's proposed a grand total of two trillion. So you know, we really haven't done anything like this before. Um, so you know, one of the things I've noticed is you can put a lot of money towards something but you've got to have the resources in order to do it basically the uh, american what was it the american Re-in- recovery and reinvestment act uh, or the ARRA um, that actually um, in 2000 I think it was 2009 when that was put forth you know the stim- everybody calls it the stimulus package you know there was a lot of money there but the problem was it had to be spent right away So, and you've already got states that have gone through this period where they've had to do layoffs, they've had to reduce staff. And now all of a sudden you've thrown a bunch of money at them and said, okay, now you need to get this stuff out the door with limited staff, limited resources. And so that means you've probably have to go hire out a bunch of the work because you just don't have the staff to do it. And, you know, so it kind of puts the public sector at a little bit of a disadvantage. And, you know, one of the things that I, I've always advocated for, for public sector, I'm actually a member of a public sector union, and, you know, the, I agree, you know, I, I really think the, you know, the public sector really delivers the best bang for the buck, um, because of the investment that's made because of the institutional knowledge that you gain, um, and that can be used for later projects. So, you know, you really put the public sector at a disadvantage. And, you know, it's really not a great use of the taxpayer dollar to have to essentially hire out all this work, um, you know, kind of all at once. And uh, the other piece of it too, is that, you know, we want to make sure that we have quality work and it's just, there's always, I'm not saying there isn't quality, but it's, it's always harder to do it when there's an accelerated timeline. So, you know, yeah, it's great. We have all this money and, and we, we need to get it out the door and get it into, you know, get it working into the economy, but there's a whole side of that where, you know, it's, it's got, you've got to have the resources, you've got to staff up, you've got to do that. And not just at the, you know, kind of the design and development level, but also the contractors as well. I mean, they're going to need to be able to hire people and, you know, get on board and get ready to actually be able to take on all this work.
0: Uh, Yeah. I've never thought of it that way before. And all the, all the lead time that's involved, of course, that. It makes more sense. So I think you were recommending, like maybe even like a ten-year authorization bill.
1: Yeah, and and, and you know I, obviously we if we don't agree much with uh, with what um, President Trump has done, um, but the his his big infrastructure idea, um, you know the, the whole one trillion with you know basically very little federal money put into it and everything coming from matching private investment, um, that was actually spread out over a ten-year period. So. We haven't really done anything like that before, but we haven't had this giant chunk of money, you know, thrown at um, infrastructure either. So, you know, with with such a huge chunk of money trying to do all this work, it really makes sense to spread it out um, to basically, you know, if if you want to put a stimulus package out, that's fine. But, you know, kind of limit that to a certain amount that's actually, you know, is actually doable and then put all your kind of your bigger projects and kind of your more long-term things that will really generate your economic development and your jobs and things like that, throw, put that into, you know, a reauthorization.
0: Ah, okay. Well, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this, but uh, it sounds like those are really important issues that, that planning and to, to, to really get things done.
1: Exactly. And the other the other piece of it, too, is that, um, you know, we have a lot of things, and, and Pete noted this in, in his proposal, was that we do have a lot of road repairs that, that need to be done, plus a lot of structurally deficient bridges in the United States. And, you know, before we actually build these, you know, these high-speed rail or these big, you know, these big bridges or these bypasses or things, you know, essentially expanding, um, we really need to take a look and see what we've actually got to fix first. Um, And, you know, and his plan really laid that out and really, and again, that's kind of what I appreciate about him is his kind of his pragmatic way of looking at things. Um, We really need to address that stuff first um, because we have, I mean, states have really had to go to kind of like a triage level of looking at infrastructure because the funding just hasn't been there. So you try to keep up, you, you know, states are trying to keep up their best roads the best they can. And the other roads that are out there that haven't really had the treatment and things like that that they really need have kind of suffered. So, you know, let's take a look at some of that, and, and especially in kind of the rural areas where actually we have kind of the, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the, the crashes happen out there. You know, let's take a look at some of that and, and make sure that gets addressed before we start kind of planning these big, bold ideas.
0: Oh, there's going to be a lot of catch-up, isn't there?
1: There is quite a bit because we just... When you, when you haven't raised rev, you know raised your revenue source since 1993, there's a lot of stuff that needs to get fixed.
0: Okay, let's go on to your number three, which is adopt vision zero for the Federal Highway Administration. And I had never heard of Vision zero, but uh, that's just because I haven't been following these things. Uh, so tell us, uh, Vision Zero's means no more traffic deaths. It's a safety program. Can exactly. you tell tell us about that?
1: So Vision Zero is the idea of vision of no highway deaths for all users. Your ve- you know, vehicles, pedestrians, cyclists. Um, basically, it started out in the Scandinavian countries, uh, Sweden. Um, you know, they've really been the leaders in it, and. You know, they basically they've they've been able to take um, when they started this in 1997, and you know Sweden's you know obviously not the size of the United States, but they were able to take their their highway deaths from 541 in 1997 to 270 in 2016. So you know that's that's quite a drop. Um, and now in, in 2019, uh, that rate had, had dropped further um, to 221. So, you know, and that basically it was it was uh they they they've dropped their rate, you know, from 2016 um to to uh 2019 from 2.7 to 2.1 uh fatality rates. Uh 2.7 fatalities per th- 100,000 oh, okay. people. Okay.
0: So. so that's how it's measured. And
1: uh, right now for comparison, America in 2016 uh,
0: was at 12.8. So we're high.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you you compare us, uh, the United Kingdom is is 5.4, France is 5.5, Italy 5.6, and so you know we're we're double we're more than double that, and we're triple Germany, Spain, and the Netherlands. So there's a lot more we can do to save lives in, in the U.S. Um, you know, but uh, but we've got to kind of decide that this is where we want to head. Um, the National Safety Council, which is kind of a non nonprofit. Um, they've actually kind of, you know, of, they've adopted this idea of uh, by 2050 um, that uh, that we would be able to get to that number of zero.
0: So, what's included in that um, statistic of traffic deaths uh, can be uh, pedestrians, bicyclists are included, as well as, yeah, um, exactly, drivers and passengers. Okay, right,
1: right. All use basically any user of the highway system, we want to, you know, where we want to, you know, eliminate fatalities. I mean, that's, that's the ultimate goal is make sure that, you know, there, there are no fatalities and, you know, realistically with the, with the size of the country that we have, we're probably not going to get to zero, but you at least establish policy and a mindset that you're going to get there and you reduce the number of fatalities that you have. And especially on the pedestrian side, because, I mean, those have just kept growing to the point where, in 2018, I think it was around 6,000. So it's just, you know, we've we've got to do something to 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 make people safer. And I I was pleased to hear that uh, that uh, the uh, secretary designate uh, this morning on uh, on Morning Joe, uh, M S N B C, he had mentioned uh, that safety was going to kind of be the number one priority of of uh, the U S D O T. So. Um, that's something that I, you know, I'm really looking forward to.
0: Yeah. So, well, I was just wondering what your take on that. Why the U.S. lags behind? Is that is that primarily be primarily because we have not uh, adopted this Vision Zero, or are, are there uh, in addition to you know not uh, proactively working on it, are there other things that are sort of unique to our um, our vast diverse country here uh, that kind of uh, make us more dangerous.
1: <laughs> I think I think it's you know it's a lot of things. Funding is a big one. We just we haven't put we haven't funded you know um infrastructure appropriately so the fact that we can do all the things that we need to do to improve safety. Um that's kind of the the, the biggest one.
0: So you're saying and that we know you we know what we need to do to make things safer there's just hasn't been enough money. Exactly. Okay.
1: And the other thing, too, is that, you know, the, some of the methods that we're using, too, are, are really, we've been kind of doing the same thing for a number of years. And, um, you know, we're we're kind of slow to the innovation piece of it. So, you know, we're getting there.
0: Is that also funding or planning? Um, part or just... of it
1: could be. Yeah, part of it could be. And part of it is kind of a... a uh, Basically a comfortable, you know, we're comfortable with what we have as far as the, mm-hmm. the uh, technology or the the uh, traffic control that's out there. You know, we're kind of everybody's used to a certain way. And when you introduce something new that may potentially be safer, people are more apprehensive.
0: Right. So it's uh it's not uh, an area where you can make a lot of quick changes, <laughs> which which kind of uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you were ready to go on to the next one, but roundabouts are definitely yes. was the next thing roundabout advocacy and implementation, but that's definitely related to, um, safety. And, um, exactly. so, so that reminded when you say you, it's, it's difficult to make these big changes, right. And have um, them accepted. And in fact, um, You know, I suppose people don't really know how to use roundabouts that then that increases the, you know, traffic accidents for a while. Um, uh, That just made me think of that when you said, oh, well, you have to be careful, like, if your things are already established and the things are going well, that, you know, if you put something like roundabouts in the mix, (laughs) uh, it can be, it can make it worse, better than uh, rather than better at first, but th- you know that's just my my yes. take on w- observing people who don't know how to drive uh, through a roundabout. Observing that is kind of scary sometimes, but I think people are starting to learn um, how to they, how they to do are. it.
1: Um, yeah, there are a lot of there are a lot of roadblocks out there. It's interesting because, and you know, I as I as I wrote, um, basically the traffic signal came in at like the turn of the turn of the twentieth century. The first one was installed in Cleveland in, in nineteen fourteen and by the thirties and forties, they were commonplace, you know, everybody kind of knew how to use them. Um, you know, and it's because they were basically, you know, there, there were kind of a sort of a campaign to do it. And if you think about it, um, you know, in, in television shows, books, media, toys, you know, kids, the first thing you learn, you know, one of the first things you learn is stop and go with red and green lights, you know, and you don't see that with roundabouts, you know, the only thing, you know, Nash, you see them in like kind of a, a movie or viral video clips or something like that, but you know there, there's not that same level of integration. So you know people, you know the first time they see a roundabout is probably when they're doing, you know if they've got one in their town or if they if they're if they have one in their town because you know we have, we have seven thousand or so, but they're still not everywhere. So there are some places where they're just there there aren't any roundabouts and, and if you don't experience them, you know the first time you see may see one maybe even after you have your driver's license, you know, you, it may be a while before you actually see one. So, you know, you're, you're not the uh, the unfortunate thing is the way that education has been pushed is basically at a public meeting where you have whoever the stakeholders are at that particular meeting. And then you're kind of relying on them to disseminate information or if you actually are putting one in, you know, and you do kind of a little bit of a public awareness campaign for the folks that that affect in that particular area or if something goes wrong and you have to remind people how, you know, if you're having issues at a particular roundabout, how to, peep, how to drive it. But there's been no centralized national effort um, on to actually um, have folks learn how to actually use roundabouts. You know, and, and engineers understand, you know, how, how they're supposed to work, how they do actually work. And in cases where you know people have gotten comfortable and used to them, they they work really well. Um, but it's just they the uh, the whole uh, kind of centralized campaign has kind of been lacking. Um, the driver education piece is interesting because um, I actually did kind of a little um, research project a couple of years ago, um, decided to look at all of the states out there that had driver education. And there are only actually thirty two or thirty some odd states that actually require formal driver education to be licensed, so you're kind of dealing with that to begin with, so you're down from fifty to thirty are you kidding wow no that's that's what's out there other states you can just take a driver's test and you know as long as you can do that you're you're good
0: I'm assuming those are states that have uh, a lot of you know they don't have a lot of density of population in big cities,
1: potentially potentially yeah. oh. But yeah, so basically you, you're you're already at disadvantage there, and then if you don't actually have roundabouts in your required curriculum, and I only actually found out of the ones that had required curriculum, because again, not all 32 states have that as well. So now you now you kind of whittle that down even further. I only found six states actually had something about roundabouts in in their curriculum. So you know when you're not really sure that it's being taught in driver's ed. And you're, the other thing is, too, is do states actually require people to know anything about, you know, a roundabout or anything else that's kind of new for, for a traffic system? What, uh, you know, what are people actually learning, you know? And, and teaching after the fact just just isn't effective. You know, we, the like I said, it, the best time to get uh, folks to learn about them is really when they're kids. I mean, that's that's really when you, you know, notice things and start seeing how, I mean... Before we had driver's ed, we knew what, it, you know, going into driver's ed, I knew what a traffic signal was. I knew how to op- how it operated, you know, whereas for a roundabout, you know, you, you go in and it's like, okay, well this is a roundabout. <laughs> it's like, oh, really interesting. You but know, We have to
0: educate all those people who already have driver's license. That's a pretty big um, segment of yes. the population. Exactly. Uh, and then, you know, you can't wait till you get, I mean, I know how to drive them, Um but I suppose maybe my my ninety year old mom, you know, she she would just avoid yep. it if all she knew about if there was a roundabout. But um, when you, you can't wait until you get to the roundabout and then there are signs telling you which lane you should be in, because if you don't know what you're doing, if that's your first uh, exposure to it, that's it's too late. You can't make that decision. Which lane am I supposed to be in? You know, <laughs> that's that's more of a a reminder if you already know how to do it.
1: <laughs> right it's it's like almost, it's like coming to a traffic signal and not knowing what a traffic sig- how a traffic signal operated
0: you, mm-hmm. know? Which, that you was, know which
1: when do i go when do i you know so but that if, was only if you one didn't choice know anything about it
0: yep. yeah stop or go right and this is uh, more complex but um, tell tell us why they are safer
1: yeah it's uh, basically because with roundabouts you have uh, with a typical intersection you have, uh, you know, so many conflict points, which is what we call basically when, when you have a turning movement or something like that, where a vehicle turns and they could potentially be impacted by another vehicle, you know, we call that a conflict point. Mm, okay. And so roundabouts reduce that number. And depending on the configuration, um, you know, it can be a, you know, a, a major reduction, um, you know, or, uh, or, or, you know, a fairly significant reduction of that so you don't have as many issue you know any uh, as many conflict points to to have that uh, problem the other the other issue uh, the other benefit is you know i hear a lot of people saying that they're really small or they're too small and you know i think a lot of people are probably thinking of rotaries which we don't or traffic you know those big traffic circles that we just don't design anymore because we found uh, or i say we but the engineering profession is Found that just the the uh, you know the safety aspect really isn't there you know you have the capacity aspect but you don't have the safety aspect and roundabouts you really give you the give you both um, by having a smaller diameter the the traffic is slower and you actually have uh, curved entries so that creates essentially instead of a uh, you know a perpendicular crash you know with, with 90 degrees which is more severe you have more of a, an angular crash.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and at a lower speed,
0: which is going to do so, body damage on your car, but you'll exactly pro- you'll probably not be injured.
1: Exactly, and that's that's the thing. It's that that safety aspect of them. You you slow traffic down, but you keep it moving. That that's the beauty of the roundabout, where you're not sitting there waiting. You know, that's the worst thing is you come up to a rural intersection at, at night, no no traffic's around, and you have a red light, and it's just so you know. With a roundabout, you could nothing's coming you just you proceed into the circle and you're on your way so it's uh you know there's there's so much more efficient um you know and and the the idling thing i mentioned too you know with the reduction of idling it's a reduction of emissions
0: ah yes i was just going to ask you about the climate yeah, they're aspect.
1: good for the, they're good for the environment and they save gas um the city of carmel has really seen a huge um you know savings and i think Um, they had mentioned, I think it was like 24,000, um, gallons of gas. Um, it was, uh, you know, an extraordinary number, but, uh, you know, the more roundabouts that we implement, you know, the better our environment's going to be. And the roundabout also offers the ability for green space. So you have that ability, you know, that, that kind of that placemaking piece of a community as well. Um, you can, you know really put nice landscaping and things around there to really beautify a community and provide gateways. And, you know, they, they really are, um, you know, kind of that that placemaking uh, uh, device uh, that, that a community can use to, to increase safety, better the environment. And the other thing is the resiliency. Um, one of the things I know the administration is talking about is making our infrastructure more climate resilient. Um, kind of, for example, up here on the East Coast, we're supposed to get this, uh, you know, this big windstorm on on uh, Christmas Day, and you know, with with high winds, that's going to potentially take knock out power um, to a significant portion of the state. And we have all these traffic signals, so all of a sudden, all these traffic signals are going to go dark. So, with a roundabout, it keeps working. You, you, you know, there's no, uh, you know, you don't have to worry about electricity to operate it. And basically if it's not submerged, it functions. <laughs> so, you know, any kind of weather it's, it's still going to work. So, you know, that, that climate resiliency is a, is a big piece, I think, uh, you know, another big selling point. And, and the other thing too, uh, the pedestrian piece of it, um, roundabouts are actually one of the most pedestrian friendly intersections because by, essentially putting in what's called a splitter island, those islands uh, that divide the different directions of the road um, coming to and from the roundabout, you actually, um, pedestrians only have to cross one lane at a time. So it's a lot safer for them because traffic's slower. They only have to cross one lane and look in one direction. And, you know, it, it, uh, it make things, makes things a lot less stressful um, crossing a, a two-lane roadway at, at a potentially busy time uh, the roundabout really, really does make things better for pedestrians.
0: Well, I'm looking at the photo that you have included in the medium piece of this beautiful roundabout, and I can see, easily see that what you're talking about for the pedestrians. But what I'm finding as a driver in areas that are not, you know, pedestrians really aren't around as much that I'm surprised when there is a, a pedestrian. <laughs> so that that's going to yes. have to be part of the education as well. It's just like not expecting as you go through that roundabout that all of a sudden there's going to be a pedestrian there that you need yep. to slow down for, but that you need exactly to stop for. I-, I don't mean slow down. <laughs> you need to actually right. let them pass.
1: Yep.
0: Uh, but I want to talk about like as a driver, like the benefit that uh, the people who, you know, if they're opposed to this just because maybe they don't like the construction, they don't like to have to, you know, have like the change, but there we've uh, had some, uh, um, a project near me, which I could say is kind of more in a neighborhood. Uh, it's not a huge highway, but um, so there are several roundabouts in a row down uh, Lindale Avenue and in, in Minneapolis and in Richfield. And, uh, some of that one of them is really small. And my husband was just saying, like, oh, you know, did they need to do one there? And I said, Well, you know, that was the most annoying traffic light because the <laughs> ones where it's like you have to wait forever and there's nothing. There's no traffic coming. Exactly. At all. So what I wanted to say as a, a driver is like the my whole experience of going through that area has reduced stress. Not that waiting at a traffic light is stressful, but I don't know. Um
1: I don't yep. know what what word and to
0: use, but to just be able to flow through there <laughs> and you're right about the um landscaping and the you can have these areas for you know beautification i i guess you know uh what what word you used but that just makes you feel more relaxed as a driver driving through there being you know seeing the plants yep. and uh just being able to get get uh through there and um I think anybody who's resisting it, uh, doesn't realize that, you know, once you get used to it, that you're going to like it better.
1: Right. And it's just, it is, I mean, it's just, everybody's kind of ingrained into, okay, there's a problem. We need a signal. (laughs) So it's just, it's getting people past that, that that a signal may not necessarily want, it may not be warranted because there are certain warrants to actually have a signal put in, um, because sometimes signals can cause more problems if they're not actually warranted. So, you know, so one, it's got to be warranted, but two, it just it doesn't provide you know the safety benefit, the um, the walkability, the environmental benefit. Um, the other thing uh, you know that uh, the um, Ohio University, uh, their risk institute came up with was that roundabouts were one of the best ways to reduce distracted driving because that's that's a big issue. Um, there have been, there were no fatal uh, from the studies they did they said there were zero fatal crashes from distracted driving um, at roundabouts so you know that's you know and it makes sense at a roundabout you know at a, at a traffic light you can you know stop look around do something in your vehicle you know mm-hmm. and you know you may not you know or, or you you're doing something in your vehicle and you may kind of just blow through a red light or something like that whereas at a roundabout you have to be aware of the traffic that's that's coming into the circu in the to the uh, circulatory roadway that that circular roadway and you know just be aware of everything around you the pedestrians coming and things so it really makes you think and you know and, and have to keep keep your eyes on the road and, and keep your eyes you know where they need to be instead of in your vehicle kind of you know doing something else which you can do while you're sitting in a red light or you know, or think you're sitting at a red light and all of a sudden it's turned green. So, you know, the the opportunity for distraction is is less at a roundabout. So it really does make sense that they are an effective uh, countermeasure.
0: Uh, I used to uh, time the, all the the lights on my commute to work when I used to commute (laughs) and say, okay, this one's the long one. So this is the one where I can like do my little task and then, oh, this one's only 15 seconds. And so, you know, really, even though it seems like it's going to be long, it's, not long so uh i'm not going to be able to do that too much longer (laughs) (laughs) all right if if things go the way (laughs) you you would like them to
1: well like i said i they're not gonna they're not gonna be everywhere but i think that uh you know with with pete you know he's he's done you know his smart street initiative he used roundabouts he said he's not a roundabout fundamentalist but he understands the benefit of a well-paced roundabout and having somebody to communicate that at, at his level i think could you know if if you know, federal highway to do a, a national campaign, kind of his direction. Um, you know, I think it would just open up the possibilities. And the biggest thing is, you know, with the fatal crashes, um, you know, that that's a uh, we're trying to get to Vision Zero. Roundabouts are a great way to get there. And you know, if we can put more in, we'll be able to save a whole lot more lives. And uh, you know, and and, and bake things and, and, you know, benefit our environment at the same time. So there's just a lot of things roundabouts can do if, if we can get more of them in the United States.
0: Right. And I, I've uh, been through the, one of the ones in South Bend, cause I've been there a few times, although it's always been an Uber driver who has, has <laughs> driven me through it, but, uh, and a, a smaller roundabout, but it, it does, they, they look beautiful. They, they def, definitely, there's a lot of beauty, uh, and they fit in a neighborhood nicely. All right, the last one, number five, recommend an yeah. up, recommend an updated uniform vehicle code. So you'll probably have to explain what a uniform vehicle code is.
1: Sure. So the uniform vehicle code um, it was first established in 1926, and basically it was so that you could have a universal set of traffic laws or, or ordinances for state to imp- for states to implement. So you could have universal operations and obviously universal enforcement. It, you know, it makes sense. You want the traffic laws in the U.S. to pretty much be all the same because we we really should be having the same infrastructure, the same, you know, the same markings, the same traffic control devices out there. So, you know, this, this, uh, this codes existed. Uh, and then this committee, the National Committee for the Uniform Traffic Laws and Ordinances um, was actually made to be responsible for updating that starting in 1948 and they produced as infrastructure changed and different things uh, were developed um the committee updated the code but in 2000 they went on hiatus because they were no longer funded so the uh, the the code the responsibilities of updating it was passed on to another committee um the committee for uniform traffic control devices And they maintain what's called the manual for uniform traffic control devices, and that's basically kind of all the signs and and signals and guidance for all of that. um, For all of the states, Um, they they rely on this to you know to make sure they're in compliance. And while they that committee had proposed a draft update in 2015, there really hasn't been a formal update to that code since 2000. And that happened to be again going back to roundabouts that happened to be right at the start of the implementation of roundabouts across the U S um, really kind of the late nineties was when they started um, coming in to, to kind of fashion uh, by, uh, by, you know, traffic professionals to try to solve issues. But uh, you know, since 2000 we've had a lot of roundabouts and we've had a lot of other things too, that have been developed for, you know, for traffic, uh, for traffic control and safety. But since there've been no updates to that, the vast majority of states are trying to use nonspecific language from previous updates of the code. And again, in that 2018 uh, kind of fact-finding research that I did, I was only able to find 11 states um, for going back to roundabouts again, that actually mentioned roundabouts in their motor, motor vehicle operation laws. And the ones that did have it in there weren't all consistent either. So now, you know, you're supposed to, this uniform vehicle code exists, so all these traffic laws are supposed to be the same, but because there have been no updates, states have kind of taken it on their own to make sure their enforcement has the tools to have proper operations so everybody's safe and around about. But because that hasn't existed, you know, states have done this on their own, and now they're inconsistent with the other, you know, the other states that haven't done it.
0: So some states have done a really good job uh, of of updating, and some states you know, probably haven't done anything. Um, Correct. Okay. Yeah. So having some sort of a uniform.
1: And if you go from state to state as a driver or, you know, or as a, you know, a, a, a motor carrier going from state to state, you've got different rules now at these different roundabouts, you know, so you don't really, you know, you don't know what you're in compliance with or not. And that can make things kind of confusing for folks. So, you know, there really does need to be some sort of standardization there. And, you know, I, I I hope that under uh, you know under Pete that uh, potentially something can happen, whereas either that committee reconvenes the older committee to actually do a code update, or the committee it was passed on to actually you know has the charge to develop something. So you know I'm, I'm hoping that uh, that Pete may be able to or under his leadership uh, something can happen there.
0: So could you give me an example of like is that something like uh, not switching lanes in a ro- uh, roundabout or? So exactly. That's okay.
1: that's one of them. Um, the standard one that was in the previous, the 2000 code was essentially just for a, a what they called a rotary, um, you know, a rotary or traffic circle. And it was basically that you could, you know, basically you could proceed one way around a, a uh, you know, an, an island in the middle. Uh, basically, that was, that was it. That was all that was there for, for quote, roundabouts was that, you know, an old language for rotary or traffic circle. So, and there's just so much. I mean, that whole thing that you mentioned, you're not supposed to switch lanes. Um, In some cases, certain roundabouts are designed so that a tractor trailer takes up both lanes as it goes around the roundabout. So you're not supposed to really be beside one when that happens. So just a lot of operations and things that, you know, enforcement, really needs to have the tools to be able to properly enforce it. Um, You know, otherwise, you know, people are just going to continue doing, you know, certain behaviors because they think they are doing what they're supposed to be doing.
0: Right. I mean, yeah, they're most people are acting in good faith. So that's all part of the educational part of it. Yep. Oh, wow. Exactly. Oh, my gosh there's so much. Oh, this has been so interesting <laughs> talking to you. Um, so those are the five areas and I do urge people to read your entire medium piece because it's fascinating and it's very well documented and you have links to lots of th- everything that you're citing. You've mentioned Pete a lot in in each each of these and how you think he can address these based on, you know, his what he's done in South Bend but also what posed primary campaign and his communication skills. Do uh, you have anything to add? Like, I mean, we we of course we're Team Pete. We think he's fantastic. How is he uniquely suited for the position of Secretary of Transportation?
1: Well, besides those communication skills, like I said, we've really you know the the transportation sector has really needed a strong advocate, um, you know, for for transportation and infrastructure in general, and you know, I think Pete's really got the communication skills to really reach folks to to, to advocate for transportation. Um, but the also his, you know, his mayoral experience too, um, the innovations he's not been afraid to try, um, such as the smart streets, such as the, you know, the roundabouts, and he's proven that they work and that they do spur the development that he said. Um, but the other, the fact that he's from South Bend, Indiana, you know, he's not from Los Angeles, California, or New York City, or, you know, one of these big, or Chicago, or, you know, one of these big cities. So he's, you know, he's he can identify with a lot of these smaller, um, you know, cities and, and rural areas that are really trying to develop their, their transportation infrastructure. You know, he can really provide some representation there. And the other thing is that he inspires people. I think we know that. And, you know, I think he'll bring a lot of inspiration, um, not to just within, you know, the, the the U.S. Uh, Department of Transportation and the employees there. But, you know, all the people that transportation touches, all of the, you know, the state DOTs and things like that, I think he can really inspire everybody um, within, you know, transportation in the United States to, you know, um, decide that, you know, we have a chance and this is our opportunity to really get something done to that we've never really seen before since probably the time, you know, in the 50s when we were building the interstate you know, we've really got a chance here to do something really special and, uh, you know, and, and uh, Pete can lead the way for us.
0: Well, wow, I'd love to hear you say that. That's really exciting. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to all that happening. So, you know what, I'm going to have to let you go pretty soon. But my last question for you, let's dream big. What's a dream for the future, the future development, the future of, of uh, transportation engineering and highway design
1: well, I think, you know, like I said, I think I think we're going to get to the point where we're going to be working with a lot of models. Um, one of the things I think that a lot of people aren't talking about is the research for green materials um, in actual road construction. Um, that's kind of something I mentioned in the piece. Um, you know, we've got a lot of, right now, you could drive on a road, it's either asphalt or concrete. And most of the time, I'm guessing it's pretty much, it's probably just asphalt. It's probably... Um, you know, it's, it's about 94% of our roads are asphalt. So, you know, that's not really a green process. It's not really green friendly. There is some recycling that's involved, in, you know, in some of those treatments. But, you know, we really need to kind of find if we're going to move on from fossil fuels, then stuff we drive on really needs to move on too. So finding that that kind of that next thing, you know, what are, what can we build roads out of? And, you know, what technologies are out there? Um, I know they're doing a lot of research about that in Europe, but just in the U.S., you know, there's so much potential to do some materials research and things, and there's more things that we could be doing, I think, in that regard, and I'd I'd really like to see that. And the other thing is, uh, you know, we're really electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles, you know, that's kind of the future, but a real big focus on electric vehicles. Um, One of the things I wrote about, really, uh, when I was uh, in in college was uh, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles and kind of hydrogen fuel cells have kind of been kind of, kind of back so to speak, you know, the auto industry does have some investment there, but the thing with, uh, with electric vehicles is, you know, another green sustainable issue is that the batteries, you know, one, um, the sourcing of the cobalt that actually goes in the batteries comes, you know, a lot of it comes from, um, the Congo where they actually have, uh, you know, slave and child labor. And, you know, some of the industry and, you know, cell phone companies and things like that, they re- use the sim- similar technology for batteries. You know, they've kind of tried to clean that up, but the automakers really kind of haven't been part of that. Um, so that that's one kind of issue that, uh, that needs to be. And, and then the battery itself is, you know, once the vehicle has reached the end of its useful life, what happens to the battery? You know, we got to dispose of it somewhere and the battery itself is kind of hazardous waste. So, you know, yeah, we're reducing emissions and making the air cleaner, but now we've got to figure out, you know, now we've got some solid hazardous waste storage that we need to deal with. So with the hydrogen fuel cell, pretty much, you know, you don't have that issue because the fuel cell itself essentially is the battery. And it creates that it still has the zero emissions. Um, The issue is the expense. That's been the biggest kind of the, the, uh, you know, the technology there, there are fuel uh, stations, hydrogen fuel stations kind of popping up across the US, but they're just not getting the same push that electric vehicles are. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, if you get, if you develop the technology and you can kind of have hydrogen fuel cell vehicles compete against electric vehicles, and then the two can really better the technology to, to really, you know, get the most out of each. Um, so, I, you know, rather than going all electric vehicle at this point, I, I really would like to see kind of a bigger push for, for hydrogen fuel cells.
0: Wow, that wasn't even on my radar. This has been such, <laughs> this has been so educational for me. Uh, wow, you are, I could talk to you all, all afternoon, but I, <laughs> uh, we do have to to uh, get back to our day now. But uh, thank you so much, Jonathan French, for talking to me today. And I'm sure I'll be seeing you on Twitter and we'll be keeping track of, of what uh, Pete's, going to be doing as secretary of transportation
1: absolutely and if you do if you are interested um you know you can follow me um my twitter handle is at jtrea 81 jtray 81 and uh you know there's a little bit of Orioles stuff in there because i am a big baltimore orioles fan but uh, but there's a lot of a lot of transportation stuff and certainly a lot of beat stuff as well
0: fantastic thank you so much
1: thank you very much
0: Thank you for listening to Twitter Travels for Pete, Transportation Edition. I hope you learned something new. I know I did.